You're listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Good afternoon. Welcome to Off Script, American Theater's live chat and podcast about all things theatrical. I'm Rob Weiner, Kent, the editor in chief of American Theater. My pronouns are he/him, and I'm coming to you. Uh, from the lands of the Maspeth and Rockaway in Queens, although my backdrop is the Long Wharf Theatre. We're going to be talking to Eliana Pipes and Laurie Willowy uh, later about their production Dreamhouse, which is going up there uh, next week. Uh, it's in tech now. And I'm here with... Allie Pearson. I'm the associate editor here at American Theatre. I'm coming to you also from Queens, the Maspeth and Rockaway people. Uh, and my pronouns are she, her. Great. Um, Ali, it's great to have you on board. This is your second off script. Um, I could say uh, I threw you right into the deep end with our, <laughs> our first uh, uh, special package of stories uh, for a while now. Um, and uh, we, we did one last year. Uh, we marked what is tomorrow is March 20, March 12th from our taping. March 12th, 2020 was the day Broadway shut down and, and that weekend most theaters around the country also completely shut down. And so we marked, we marked that anniversary last year with a, with a roundup of quotes and where people were at. Last year, there weren't many in-person or any really. If, if, uh, there were some places that were doing in-person staging. People were looking forward to the summer and outdoors and the spring. And then there was a kind of uh, blossoming in the summer and, and fall for those who remember before Omicron. Anyway, we did a special issue of stories called Two Years and Change, uh, which is up on our site right now. Um, and I, will have to, I have to say, uh, we probably would have done this issue anyway, but one of the stories you pitched, Ali, in your job interview, <laughs> one of the special issues you pitched was, was, was this, a version of this topic. Um, and uh, one of the stories I believe was part of your pitch, which is a great idea, was to with the help of Three Views, which has a wonderful archive of productions, and also just our own thoughts about things that we, whatever happened to that show, we did a roundup of eight different shows around the country that uh, were supposed to go up in March 2020, or, or just got up and then went down. Uh, for everything from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway with, with Laurie Metcalf, which is apparently not coming back, and apparently was amazing, we'll never know. Um, we had one guy who saw it, who wrote, who wrote, who wrote about it for us, uh, Joey Sims. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so it, everything from that to Ms. Martha Washington, the James Imes play coming back, Ocean Filibuster at ART, which is literally opening like a, a two years to the date for when it was supposed to. So a lot of stories like that. Um, I, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of hope that comes through. James Imes has a lot to say about where he hopes the field is going. And um, uh, yeah, one of the last pieces I wrote before the lockdown was talking to Rosalind Ruff, a wonderful actress, about help at the shed. Uh, this interesting multidisciplinary piece, Claudia Rankin, sort of staged essay. That's coming back, and I'm really excited to. April Mathis is now playing the role. Rosalind is in another play right now. But uh, anyway, that that there's a lot of we touch a lot of points there. Quee Gwen's plays. Um, definitely recommend reading that but the the epic story we we handed to you which wasn't part of your wasn't part of your pitch tell us yeah. about that Alan. um 
this whole issue, I was just really excited and, and happy to be able to honor the work that's been going on throughout the pandemic, especially over the last two years and the way that everyone's had to pivot and be resilient. And I feel like this issue really highlights a lot of that. My uh, first feature for AT uh, is a look at the journey of Lloyd Sue's The Chinese Lady, which has become the most produced play of this season. And the interesting ways in which each production has spoken to the needs of that city and that theater, and also the ways in which um, the recent anti-Asian violence and um, harmful rhetoric promoted by, you know, the pandemic and its possible origins in Wuhan, um, all of that is, is raising important discussions and conversations in regional theaters and now it's at the public in New York. And I feel like it's important to highlight all of the hard work that's been going on with that play. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece. It's, 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 it's got a few more productions coming up. It, it's, it's Timeline in Chicago, uh, Jiva in, in, in uh, Rochester. Anyway, there's a, there's a, it is extremely, extremely produced play and that's probably not the end of it. There'll probably be more. Um, I, I loved, I was aware of most of those productions. The one that I was really, really excited that you you highlighted basically was a student production at Princeton that turned into a major production. And it was, uh, that was, yeah, that was an unexpected delight in this, in what is really an epic journey, but it's, it's a long read, but it's definitely worth your time to look at the Chinese. Day. I think it also, it's worth recording this, what seems to be a major American play. Um, you know, some of the other ones we that we hit were uh, Cold Country, which was a, a docu-theater piece by uh, Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen, Steve Earle Music, which they actually wrote a piece for us when the show closed about how making the link between the preventable tragedy of the coal mine accident and the preventable tragedy, you know, that we were in in terms of the pandemic, that, not that we could avoid the pandemic, but if you might recall, there was some mismanagement and there was some, uh, uh, you know, bad public policy around that. In any case, it's back. We have one of the writers or one of the actors in the show wrote a piece about their bittersweet feelings about coming back and the, how they really took them a moment to really click back in like, oh yeah, we're doing this. Um, anyway, there's a, there's, I recommend looking at the whole, the whole issue. The, uh, the other one that was really nice was Linda Buckwald's piece. Allie, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Uh, this was another one that I, I pitched in my job interview and really hoped, and I'm really, really glad that we were able to make this happen. Um, Linda's piece is so fun. It's a look at the kind of age of the understudy that we've sort of been living at, living in, in that the number of people that have been filling in and coming back um, has been, suffice to say, unusual, but it's also been really, really beautiful for all of these people that, that get their moment in the spotlight. And I feel like it's time that we give them the credit that they deserve for learning sometimes five, six roles at a time and juggling all of the wonderful theater that we we come to see so check that piece out yeah that was really good uh and I, I would say just check out all the pieces in there um we uh don't often get the chance to publish someone of the stature of uh of uh that we did this week we we uh whenever an important person dies in the theater we try to ask a colleague of theirs um you know, who knows their work or, or knew them personally to write sort of a eulogy. We don't really do an official obituary reporting on their entire resume. We sort of do more of a tribute. Uh, that's what we'd like to do. 
And we got John Turturro, wonderful actor and director, to write about a director and teacher who shaped him from Yale Drama School on Andre Belgrader, who died last week, uh, or actually a couple, a couple weeks ago. Um, beautiful piece by John. I'm just honored to have, have him write about this very influential teacher um, and director. Um, let's see, we've also had some news items of, of, of note. Yeah, an exciting uh, news piece is that our our publisher, Theater Communications Group, has uh, launched their initiative, Thrive, Uplifting Theaters of Color, uh, in which TCG will work with an advisory circle of BIPOC representatives to provide unrestricted funds to Black theaters, Indigenous theaters, and other theaters of color based in the U.S. So there are two different grants that these theaters can apply for and be considered for, and then there will also be a cohort. Uh, for those theater makers. So very exciting things. Uh, look into that and start applying. That should be a very, very exciting initiative. I should mention also the Rising Leaders of Color program that TCG has just launched another round of. Um, and each of those for some number of years now has been centered around the city where our conference is. And I'm happy to say our next conference, I think I mentioned before, is in Pittsburgh in June, our first in-person conference since 2019 in Miami. And this, this cohort of rising leaders of color will be, uh, you should apply for it, look on our site to, if you're a young uh, emerging uh, leader of color. And what I'm really excited about is that in the past couple of years, we've added a journalist to that, to that bunch because we made the case to TCG and the funders that journalists and critics are also leaders and they would benefit from the training and, the, and also the camaraderie of this cohort of, of young writers of color. So we've had some wonderful writers come out of that that uh, go, go through that program with us. Um, so hopefully if you're a journalist of color based in Pittsburgh, that might be a, that might be a small group, but I, I, I hope not. I hope, uh, but also if you're a leader of color of any kind, uh, please apply for that. Uh, I'm not gonna go through all the other features we did. I would just say, if you would like to keep up with us, obviously go to our, our site, americantheater.org, where you can also sign up for a newsletter. We send a weekly newsletter updating you on all the news and features that we've written about. There's there's too many to talk about. I will mention really briefly um, one feature, which gives us a segue to our, our guest today. Um, Long Wharf, major, major theater in uh, New Haven, announced a couple weeks ago that they were gonna give up their permanent space. And we can talk about that uh, at some point with uh, our guests, but, because um, it'll be one of the last shows in the, in the space of Long Wharf. But we, we sort of also wrote about, um, there was a report of, about universes, Mildred's, Mildred, Mildred Ruiz Sapp and Stephen Sapp's uh, sort of hip hop theater group. And they, they do, I shouldn't define them just as that, but that's one thing they do. They're, they're a theater troupe that creates work like Party People and others. It was announced uh, in the Long Wharf season in American Theater Couple, maybe last season, that they were working on a play called Maria, which was gonna be about it made it sound like in the, in the release that it was going to be a sequel to West Side Story, and that was picked up recently because of the press about West Side Story, and the, uh, as if they were, they were doing a sequel, and, and there were people outraged and wondering, and maybe there was a rights issue. Anyway, we did a lovely story. Jose Solis wrote a wonderful story, talking to them about their, who they are, what they do, uh, reintroducing them to the field, um, and talking a little bit about what, what Maria is. It's not really a sequel. It has a lot to do with Maria the Hurricane, but also a little bit about um, the ways in which uh, Latin and Latinx folks are seen 
through the lens of that of that cultural property um, to a you know to a detrimental degree. Uh, fascinating piece. You should check it out. Um, that's a rough segue to Longworth to talk to you about Dreamhouse uh, and uh, Eliana Pipes and Laurie Willery, playwright and director respectively of this play, which is having a unique world premiere at co-production among three theaters. It was just at the Alliance. It'll be at Long Wharf next week, and then it'll go to Baltimore Center Stage. Eliana, Laurie, we'd love to talk to you about this exciting play, um, which is happening right now. You're in tech right now. Is that right, Laurie? Yes, we are. We're in the thick <laughs> of it. <laughs> so it's um, a little bit like a um, an expectant mother, like just like making sure, like, hope the kid's okay off in the <laughs> other room. But um, uh, no, I'm so happy to be here. So thank you for the invite. No, it's great to have you both. Ali, I think you want to kick off the questions. Yeah, sure. I'm just really, really fascinated with, uh, about where Dreamhouse came from and whether it started with the sisters or whether it started with the house. Um, wh where did this play come from? Yeah, absolutely. Dreamhouse really came out of two inspirations for me. The first was reflecting on the way that my hometown was transforming as I was growing up. I grew up in this little pocket of Los Angeles that was really changing when I was a kid, but as a kid, I didn't have the vocabulary to understand the gentrification that was happening in my hometown. And then when I was 13, my family moved, we sold our house. And on one hand, that move was really good for my family. We had financial access that we didn't have before. But on the other hand, we left that community. We participated in that gentrification and leaving that town meant a kind of cultural loss that I didn't understand at the time. So half of it was sort of growing up and reflecting on all of that. And then the other piece of it was coming into the American theater as a writer of color and feeling like, you know, I'm, I'm black, white, and Puerto Rican. And when I was writing stories from black and Latina experiences for a theater audience that for, for a theater community that I felt didn't always bring those populations into the audience, I sometimes felt like I was being asked to sell my cultural pain for money. And I wanted that money and I wanted that recognition and I wanted to be in those spaces. And so grappling with the sort of cost of that ambition and the sacrifices that I was making to get ahead, all of that sort of landed in the play. So I think a piece of it was the house and a piece of it was sort of the gaze and the dynamics of, of taking up space. Awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a physically ambitious production in some ways. And I wonder if that is part of the story behind the co-production with the three theaters and the process of how it was developed. Was it, was it uh, commissioned by any of them or, or how, did, how did they get together and participate in this? Mm -hmm. The play won the Alliance Candida Prize hosted by oh, the that's Alliance. that's right. Yes, and then uh, Stephanie Barra, the artistic director of Baltimore Center Stage was on the reading committee for the prize. Mm, okay. Had done a workshop of the play, actually a virtual workshop in 2020. So they had been familiar with the piece. And so when the Alliance made their announcement, the other two theaters jumped in. Amazing. Um, so, uh, Lori, is this the same production in all three places? Well, essentially, essentially, essentially yeah. yes. And as much as, you know, what's so exciting about both Long Wharf and Baltimore, Jacob and Stephanie joining the Alliance is we don't often get a world premiere play that gets to immediately learn from what couldn't happen in the first installment 
allow it to kind of have a run and then be able to revisit it a second and then potentially a third time. Um, there's kind of a trend in the American theater where it's like, you know, one hit, like you like you get it up, you get the world premiere and then what it needs is those multiple productions to be able to go back in and and rework it. I'm not saying that we have a full rehearsal process, which we don't. Mm, but mm. what we did is we um, we we kind of tailor made this I, this experience around at at the alliance there. The play has three women at the center of it: the two sisters and the the character who is the HGTV host. But there is also an ensemble, a crew that is both the um, the TV crew, the renovators. They they wear wear many many hats, and that's why this play is so exciting for it to be in a theater because we actually understand we understand crew, we understand the, the reality of like TV kind of invading a space. So it it feels like it is um, a real wonderful opportunity to take all these devices that we know which is reality tv theater sets crew and put it together but what makes it unique for each city is that the crew changes so the mm. demographics of the crew and the opportunity for artists to get work in each one of those places opens up and we have learned things here like that we did not know in the first one and that first crew and the alliance helped us give birth to what it was because it was an mm -hmm. idea and now this crew is taking that framework and we're we're reconfiguring the tracks and and adding more to what they're doing so that we're hoping when we get to baltimore we can ratchet it up um even more so that's right. that's very exciting and the other thing that's different is we law um I want to say we lost one of our actors got an amazing opportunity for a movie and so we wanted to support that opportunity and we had we've replaced one of the sisters and so that is also talk about understudies Allie like <laughs> we it, we didn't officially like we had an understudy at the alliance but now it's like okay now how do we have a show that we're we have just enough time to tech it how do mm. we bring somebody in so we were able to hire a beautiful um actress uh renata eastlick who went watched the show was able to have the archival video to study was able to talk to the actors and so but we couldn't rehearse it because we had limited resources and budget to be able to rehearse so talk about an actor who just like showed up ready <laughs> to do the work and we would be in a completely different place if Renata hadn't done that heroic work of like figuring out the blocking and getting in there and it's 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 we have a lot to learn we have to learn can I can I just ask which 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 of the so that we I realize we didn't really set the premise so it is two <laughs> sisters who are who are it's okay we just jumped in it's but um that's on us really uh it's two sisters and it's not a specified town it's it's right it's it's any city it's it's and it's um ilovia is that you say yeah ilovia uh which is a made up sort of means thread town or and, and they call it highville is the sort of anglicized right. uh version of it and they're they've agreed to quit their house on a reality show called flip it a, a, a home improvement reality show or a selling show called flip it or lift flip it and list it mm -hmm. and 
it just brings up a lot about their the history of their house, their family, and it it I don't know if you could describe the area that that it that it's in. It's between. It's there's a vivid description that Julia gives of of it's 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 where migrant workers initially initially were sort of placed in this city, right? Is that right? They, they, I, as I recall, the the men went to work in construction, the women to work in textiles, I believe, exactly. and sort of in the in the middle zone there. I, I write. Bless um, you, Rob. Well, you're, I, gonna, I, you're the <laughs> ultimate theater artist. Like, I just, I, I, rem- I, you know, I want to, I want our, our viewers who have not seen the play to have some sense of what we're talking about. So I would love to know which, which, which of the three actors, they were all wonderful in the Alliance production that we, Ali and I were not able to attend, but we were able to watch a video of uh, was, which ones were not replacing. Well, what's fabulous is you get to come to Long Wharf and see it. But, well, it is closer. Um, that's true. Yeah. It's um, Bati, the oldest sister. Oh, okay. Yeah, Jacqueline Correa was brought Bati to life for us at the Alliance, mm-hmm. and we were sad to to see her go, but so happy for her. Um, and it's, it's talk about flexibility and resilience, Ali, that you were talking about at the beginning is the, the gifts that come out of that, and the gift that came out of that is Renata, and and how it's it's the same play, but it's a different the alchemy. Um, has morphed into the alchemy of these three women. And um, to have two Afro-Latina sisters at the center of the story is really, um, it, it, it just it shifts it and opens it up in a whole other way. Hmm. I know Eliana and I, um, and Ellie uh, can talk more about it if, if she wants, but Rob, what you and um, Eliana and I all share is West Coast experience. So uh-huh. there is a part of just the DNA, the feel of the play. Like we know that, like we know this house, we know that mm-hmm. town, we know yeah, that sure. gentrification, like we mm. know it. Um, That's right. But we also wanted to make sure that it could, um, it could be performed in any place, which is so wild that it is being done on the East Coast versus the West Coast. So <laughs> shout out to my West Coast friends. Like, let's produce this play out there because we understand it in a way that, you know, East Coast is experiencing it in their own way. So that was a goal of ours. I didn't know. Absolutely. To add something to that. Yeah, definitely. Used to, Culver City was the, was the town, right? I think I read somewhere. Right. Okay. Yeah. A plus. I was Echo Park. Echo Park. My, myself. What? What? Where, where were you, Lori? I'm Angelino Heights. I still have Angelino Heights. Yeah. You still have a home there. Wow. Yes. Close by. That, I can't that give areas. up. I can't give up my LA roots, friends. I love New York, but you should hold on to it. Yeah, I wish I had. I wish I had. Well, speaking of home, Ali, I think you had yeah. more questions about the themes. I was really yeah. struck by kind of the evolving definition of what a home is in this play, and and so my question for for you both is. What does home met, home mean in the context of the play? Is it an idea? Is it a place? Or is it the people that make a home? Eliana, I feel like I must defer to you, but I just, that's such a great question that it's like you're in our heads in the rehearsal room because we're asking that question all the time. But Eliana, go for it. That's a great question. And I think it is really one of the core questions of the play, the way that their idea of home or their ideal of home transforms over the course of this sort of surreal journey that they go on. I think sort of the idea of space is so central to the play. 
both in terms of sort of literal space, like the lands that we stand on, but also the spaces that we hold for each other. And I think that over the course, come to find home in each other and in that space that we can hold for the people that we love. There's also been a lot of a conversation around um, capitalism and we say sentimentality, but I think of it as romanticism of like, I am one of those people that is very much like, oh, this was my aunt's phone and I can't get rid of it. And, you know, things hold memory. It's like the horcrux. I'm, a, you know, everything is a horcrux to me, you know, and home is the ultimate horcrux and how when someone passes what that brings up in those that want to stay and salvage and create um, kind of like an altar to that lineage, that history, that family, um, and those that also see the opportunities. What Eliana, you were talking about at the very, very, very beginning is this, this unique position to be in that you can actually transform your life if you sell the home and take the money and a be better educations, a better home, a, a retirement plan. Like there is access to what that can gain you in a capitalist structure. And that is those two clashing goals can rip families apart. So we're constantly, the play constantly explores that. The rewrites that Eliana is doing is constantly exploring that so that like the play, the play takes place in reality TV and people are witnessing this from the comfort of their homes. But we're also in a theater space where people are witnessing it from a shared collective with strangers. And how do we, um, our gaze is upon a family in crisis and how that ripples out into this idea of um, selling story, selling culture, and all in advancement of ultimately like the American dream. And we talked about manifest destiny a lot in the, in the rehearsal room about like, this is your piece of the American dream about immigrants coming in and actually building homes and creating a place to land because they couldn't in other places. So all of that is living in the DNA of the play and in the DNA of the actors that are bringing their stories to the table about their ancestors and where they fit in the lineage of that and the pull of being raised through a capitalistic world and that muscle is very strong and yet also trying to be connected to your culture, your heritage and challenging the, the definitions of all of those words that lock us in. Right, I was, I was struck uh, uh, about uh, the idea of uh, selling your pain, uh, uh, Eliana. Um, the way in which Tessa, I think it's her name, is the, is the reality show host, the, the home flip it listed host. And she, she talks a lot about how we, we just really focused on your story because it's so uplifting. And I feel like those are the two registers that, that, that uh, you know, stories of marginalized people make it into white, white, predominantly white theaters is we want to see the pain and we want to see the uplift, the people who really, you know, turn their, turn their lives around or whatever. I, 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 I also noticed the way the sisters sort of call each other out 
for performing that, uh, you know, for putting on code switching in a sort of uh, uh, performative way. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, it, the play has a, that meta level to it a little bit. I think it's where it's not only just, it's not only just a reality show, but it's also a play a little bit about how audiences receive that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I so agree about that meta theatrical point. I'm thrilled that that came through. And I do think that uh, it's funny, this is one of those things that you could never see on the stage, but in the script, there's this convention that I use in dialogue where there are brackets around words that are pronounced in Spanish. So that's how we differentiate on the page when they are Patricia and Julia versus Patricia and Julia. And in the earliest days of writing the script, that was a huge sort of hurdle for me. Like, how am I going to, you know, explain or, or, you know, how to translate that piece of, of code switching into the script? And that really early initial invention of those brackets to, delim to delineate what is Spanish helped sort of inform the way that code switching became a part of the piece as a whole. Um, yeah, that is a huge component of the story and, mm -hmm. and exactly the way that those sisters are, are really challenging each other and the way that they find that those two points of view that they felt were so separate actually sort of merge into one. It's also, in addition to that, is how language lives in first generation, second generation, and not being, being born here and not having the language, having your, your mother's, your mother tongue, literally your mother's tongue and the mother tongue is a foreigner in your own mouth. And that is, that's why I appreciate the bracket because we can all like, you know, throw it a Joselito here or there, and we can like give it a little sazon to that and, you know, and, and nail that, but to be able to fully uh, communicate a thought and to understand the nuance of language is, um, is something I know that I struggle with. My mother is from El Salvador and her mother tongue is Spanish. And there are those moments of that cultural divide and the shame around feeling that you don't have access to that is also very alive in the play. Yeah, good point. Like this sort of this this pressure to sell culture and then also the question of what is even mine to sell. Right, right. And like the, the calling each other out is like, you know, um, you're doing it. No, you're doing it, you know, but I'm doing it less than you are doing it. Like you're really like, and that is very, um, that is very sibling. Yeah. Um, the next thing I'm really interested in the kind of heightened sense of realism that the play has, you know, there are these moments where certain characters freeze and certain characters don't, and they have kind of like private conversations or asides that happen. And I'm just curious if you could, if you could speak on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yet another thing that uh, lives on the page, on the page there is this thing that the sisters can access called sister space. And it's sort of this, this space that they go to in moments of, of heightened emotion or of heightened tension where there's something they need to say that they can't say in front of the cameras or in front of strangers. And they sort of lock in on each other. And when they do, the world around them freezes and stops. It's like they, it's like twin speak or a Shakespearean aside. And at the beginning of the play, it's this sort of sacred space that the sisters hold, even though it's sort of a fraught space and more often than not a space where they're in conflict with each other, but it's still something that belongs to them. And then over the course of the play, that space gets 
sort of broken and invaded and I won't give too much away. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we talked about, it's a, it's a dense, it's a dense complex play. There's this sort of TV show space and then there's this intimate private familial space uh, and those kind of bleed into each other. Yeah, Lori, what am I missing? Yeah, I, I really think of the play as a dark comedy because there is those moments of sister space and tension but there is the tension that is like my sister and I can have it out at each other, but you don't get to do that to my sister. And it's also so it's very familiar, but it's also uh, people of color, you know, women like in a room when a comment is made, like you look at somebody and a whole conversation is happening in that look where it's like, I know you, I see you, I got you, I'm witnessing it too. And that's also that exists within that space. And it's been trying to find a theatrical language that doesn't feel like I Dream of Genie, where we're snapping in and out of it. It's like, damn, I got to serve it up better for Eliana than just than that. You know, the play is so rich and dense and unique that can we find something that gets us to those moments of intimacy without it feeling gimmicky. And that is, um, that's the beautiful challenge of this play. As a director, you're really forced to um, not go to what's easy and accessible because it walks this line, it, it will tip it into cliche, it will take it out of the funny, it will, it will lose the, the, the tension that I think Eliana has so beautifully crafted in the play. So we're all kind of constantly walking that edge of um, tipping in one way or the other that will throw off the balance um, and the tone of the play. So wish me luck, friends. We're, we're, we're carving away at it. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I was very much reminded as I was watching the play of those kind of moments you're in when you know somebody really well and you're in public and you just kind of look at each other and you're like, we should leave or or you communicate something that like you can't say out loud, but it still gets through. That's what those kind of sisterhood moments really, really communicated to me because I definitely have that with my sister and, you know, some of my friends and things like that. Right. It's it's also interesting. That there's something that you had talked about, Rob, in in earlier about Long Wharf and grief and and looks and feels that um, Eliana and I really identified when we first came to Long Wharf is we came after the announcement of uh, Long Wharf um, giving up their space and becoming itinerant and. I had never been to Long Wharf. I'd been on the outside of Long Wharf, but I had not been in to see a show or to work there, but it has always been a dream of mine to, to be there because you hear all the iconic stories and the art that's been created there. And for it wasn't lost on Eliana and I that we are entering into a space that is processing their own grief. We are the penultimate production of a, of a theater space that's going to lose their home, you know, that that is being um, let go of. And I guess I don't, shouldn't use the word lose because I know that they have plans to keep growing and expanding in a different way, very much like our sisters. So like, it feels like the perfect play to be telling right now at this time, which is my favorite moments of theater is where a, a story meets the moment. And for us to be, at Long Morph at this time, telling this story of 
what makes a family and what makes a home and grief surrounding change and uh, perceived loss and how that creates an opportunity for something else beautiful to emerge um, really feels like uh, a sacred moment. And I just wanted to make sure to like invite people to, if you haven't been to Long Wharf, like now is the time to come. It exceeded my expectations of it's so odd from the outside. I'll say that mm. word where it's yeah. like, yeah. there are all these trucks and it's this food depository, like, you know, chicken and meats and things are happening around you in these like warehouses and you walk in and um, how special it is. Uh, and just the legacy of shows and artists that have come through there, you, you, you feel it. And um, we are gaining inspiration by that. And we are holding really sacred the fact that we, we are really blessed with this moment to be of service to this community by um, being able to tell this story that anyone who has feelings around it or wants to come celebrate it, wants to help envision what the next installment of Long Wharf is. This is a beautiful moment where the art is meeting the community and the moment that we're sharing. And that, you know, you can only throw it up to the theater muses that have made that happen. Um, so I just thought it was important because it's really been living in all of us as artists you know, the actors, the designers, um, being able to partner with Long Wharf at this moment has been really incredibly special. I didn't, that didn't even occur to me. I mean, yeah, that's beautiful. It's like, it's like you doing Cherry Orchard or something that, as the theater is about to be torn down. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. <laughs> I just thought of that. Uh, years ago, I don't know, remember when the, the evidence room left the, the theater that became the bootleg, the last show Bart did there was the Cherry Orchard. I'm like, Bart, you don't realize you're doing this show yeah. <laughs> to say farewell, you know, um, to the theater. Wow. Um, I did like want to ask Bill, you... Bill's last show doing as you like it before he progressed on yeah. was that's you right. know, another way of like moving into Arden in a di different way. It's, it's, do you mean it's, that Oregon shakes his last show he did there was no, no, his last show at Cornerstone at Cornerstone. Right. He, okay. He did, uh, uh, one of those ensemble shows, which was, um, as you like it. And that's right. That's right. It was really beautiful all the ensemble artists that were a part of that yeah, yeah this is bill roush everybody and bart de lorenzo we're call, calling out calling out these old names from West theater Coast. lore as if everyone knows them <laughs> <laughs> um uh yeah i i was i was curious about the physical realization we talked a little, little bit about that about the crew that works and i'm just wondering as a as a, as a writer eliana whether as you're writing a play like this you're like envisioning what's possible with a budget and what's and what can be actually done. I, I I know I don't think it's a spoiler to say there's a little bit of a scene of uh, with a sledgehammer and demolition. I'm like, is, is this going to happen? Are we going to? You can't pick up a sledgehammer and say and have them not do it, right? So I'm just wondering about uh, that. How how much that influenced the writing? You had to go. Well, we have to cut that because we can't we can't make that. How much of of the practical world of the space are you thinking of as you write a play like this? Yeah, I love that question. I think. I think it's a really delicate dance. I, as a writer, 
write epics. I love big plays. And I think that this is a big play. And in some ways, I think it sort of masquerades as a smaller play. You know, there are there if in a music stand reading, there are three characters at music stands. And this play was sort of able to move through the festival circuit because in a stripped back version, there is a sort of modesty to it. But I think in its fully realized form, there there is a lot going on. Yeah, there's there's a sledgehammer on a wall and, and we can put together the pieces on what comes next. And, and I do think that there it's a very ambitious play, both formally and stylistically and practically. Uh, but I do think that, you know, I there have been university workshop productions of this play that have made that magic happen on a very modest budget. There have been, you know, we were in our Snowband Fest on a very modest one night budget. So I think there's something about the play that I think really can work in a bare bones form. But when it is fully realized, I do think there's a really different kind of magic and alchemy that happens. Um, and our, our scenic design is so striking and, and it's thrilling to sort of get to see everything come to life. It's a play about a house. And I think the house really is another character in the piece. The house transforms. The house tells the story of the journey that the sisters are going on. But it is, you know, it is really difficult as a playwright, especially, you know, being aware of, of the the way that resources play into decisions around programming. But I do think that the spectacle really is in service of the story and foundational to telling everything that the play needs to tell. But I'm curious what you think, Lori. Yeah, I do. I, the, the crew is the shapeshifters of the play. They really do, as a renovation crew, as a film crew, um, I one time had somebody come, a film crew come into my home in LA and I will never do it again. It was the most stressful thing. It's like, they were touching all my stuff. And it was like, ah, it was like such a, a like invasion of, of my home because it's just stuff to them and they, they do it. Like they're like dressing it up and taking it down and dressing it up, you know? And so I feel like, um, it's human resources because a lot of what we do is in the play, it, it requires, you know, financial support, but what it also just requires is that ensemble that is going in and activating that, that occupying, that invasion, that gentrification, that, um, that moment of taking over demolishing it, coming back again, adding something to do with demolishing it. Like it's really, um, it surprised me because I knew it here, but to have to actually stage, it was like, wow, this play is muscular. And requires a lot, um, not just your imagination to engage, but that too. And so um, resources are impossible, but I don't feel like, not impossible. Resources are important, but they're not impossible. Mm. Is what I'm trying there, to say yeah. on this show, as I don't feel like this play needs to have a, an active swimming pool in it. You know what I mean? Where you're like, right. I don't know how to make that happen. <laughs> it doesn't have to rain in this play, um, you know, but it, it's things that we know how to do. It's, it's Eliana's very smart. She's written a play that is very producible, and mm. it is exciting to see how it will evolve as more people start to do it. Um, you know, we made a decision to make the home very uh, like a home because I wanted Eliana uh, to to see what she had imagined it to be. 
but I can see other productions where that is abstracted slightly and um and it will be exciting to see how people take on this play and evolve it um it's been a joy honestly and i so hate to do this but i just got a text that there's talk about live there's something that's going on that is requiring me to um jump and my apologies to you all but um, no laurie it's totally we're grateful for the time you're able to have here of course it's great Thank you yeah. so much. Um, Thank you so much, Lori. We'll keep, we'll keep going with Ileana. Yes. I'll see you in Longworth. All right. Okay. <laughs> see you there. <laughs> so yeah, we, 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 Lori had warned us beforehand that she was, she is in the midst of tech. So it's a lot to yeah. ask, especially if the director, I'm, I'm sure yeah. you're involved, you're on hands on deck too, Eliana, but the director, especially um, in tech. Yeah, yeah Lori. <laughs> I do not have to go and direct the play, so I'm just sticking. <laughs> well, you don't have to run all the light cues yourself, right? No. <laughs> um, um, well, we had just kind of a, a fun question. Um, are you a reality TV fan? There's tons of home improvement shows from like the Property Brothers to all kinds of things. Um, what are what are some of your favorites? What do you watch? I come from an HGTV family. We <laughs> everything like all house hunters house hunters international the property brothers the love it or list it like every everything in that <laughs> sort of milieu is really our our jam there's like a video of me at six years old like doing the little intro speech from <laughs> i think wow. it's deep in our bones did <laughs> <laughs> come out definitely came out in the play i know that it's it's in my DNA the sort of structure of those home improvement shows and it's fat. I don't know why we love them as much as we do but something about that sense of home I guess and of transformation do you know escape to the country I think that's one my wife especially likes Ooh, no is it is it what I think it is <laughs> yeah it's 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 like it's international house hunters but it's like country houses and anyway she's she can't get enough of that it might it might not be on HTV I think it might be on um like BBC or one of those Brit boxers. I don't know if, if it's foreign and there's houses involved, you know, <laughs> I will look that up. I think I saw look. one where it was buying old castles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but obviously one, one thing that, I mean, you, one thing you, you nail really, I mean, it, I guess it's not surprising that you're, it is, as you say, in your DNA, it was either that or you spent a lot of time just researching the cadence and the sort of realityization of every moment. And obviously you have a few moments there where you lift the veil about how things actually run at a reality show. And I know that a lot of, especially those property ones, I think there was a, been some stories recently about just how much they're scripted and how much the people you're looking at aren't really either together or they're, they're not in the situation that they say they're. <laughs> I mean, was, it, was there a moment where you had the veil was lifted like, oh my God, it's not real. Like, but you still love the, 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 the artifice. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because as much as my household loves those shows, we are also all very in tune with the artifice. Yeah. And so we're sitting there on the couch, like, are they going to choose house number one, house number two, or house number three? And <laughs> it pops the bubble that they've actually already purchased the home. And yeah. all of those, like in, in every house hunters, they've already picked the house. And so you're watching them sort of go through and pretend to critique something they've already chosen in some yeah, video. Yeah their boxes they started moving in but but there's still sort of this temptation to play the game and get sucked up into the fantasy even though we know they've picked the house absolutely yeah the, well I, I i even thought like you know those the people who write for those shows are are a 
lot of them are script screenwriters or scriptwriters. I wonder if that's an area you've ever thought about <laughs> cashing in yourself, right? I do write for the screen actually, but I, I've never thought about writing for HGTV. I really. <laughs> this might be your, your audition, your audition reel here. Um, <laughs> um, so you know, so things... we, oh, sorry. yeah, go on, Ellie, go on, Ellie. One go of ahead. the things that I loved was that your play was kind of able to highlight the kind of cost of all these renovations and that there's like the loan and then it's like well if the house doesn't sell like the loan is kind of on you and like that's kind of valid for a lot of these renovation shows where like people have a lot of unforeseen expenses that they don't realize like the show doesn't pay for everything <laughs> yeah. and the risk that comes with sort of like putting yourself out there even even to take advantage of an opportunity there's that risk always looming in the background yeah for sure so, you know, we just did our, our sort of two year anniversary of this, this terrible anniversary to, ce to celebrate, quote unquote, uh, of the COVID lockdown. I just wanted to ask you, um, I don't know the story of Dreamhouse. Was it was it scheduled for for an earlier production and it ended up getting in? What have your last two years been like as a as a writer and a, as a person? How have, they, how have they been for you? Yeah, it was so moving hearing you speak about that feature. I'm so excited to go read it. I, hmm. I was just uh wrapping up my graduate program the candida prize is for folks who are in the final year of their graduate program and so i was in school when the pandemic landed and i remember and felt so palpably just just being so terrified that there would never be space for my work in the theater you know knowing that they would be bouncing back from this mass tragedy this mass horror and and, and that there would be this backlog. There was, I think, a really real fear that the play would never see a stage. And when I found out that I won the Candida Prize, I was living in Portland, Oregon, where my parents have relocated to. And we had actually, there was a horrible storm and we had a blackout. And it was the middle of winter. So I was like inside wrapped up in three layers of my coat. Things felt very grim. <laughs> it was a low moment. And then my phone rang and it was Atlanta, Georgia. And I found out the news that my play would be seeing a stage in less than a year. And I just like burst into tears and, and me and my family sort of like huddled around the fireplace together and celebrated. And it was such a bright spot to know that after all of that, that fear and uncertainty that the play would have a chance to see a stage. And then I got the surprise of finding out that it would actually be seeing three stages. And I'm really, I'm, I'm really aware of the honor that it is as an early career playwright. This is my first world premiere production at a professional theater that turned into three world premiere productions. I'm, I'm really conscious of what an honor that is and how unique this opportunity is to be able to grow the play and to learn from the play, especially a play about gentrification and a play about place in three different cities. I feel like it's it's just such a dream. Yeah, I think um, the idea that it was and it's funny, I didn't, when I was watching, I wasn't thinking about West Coast at all. I knew your bio and I knew Lori, I know from LA at Cornerstone, but, and I lived in LA for many years, but I, I feel like it's the kind of story that really, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, for better or worse, is sort of universal, is in almost every American city. Um, I mean, right down to the fact that there are usually uh, a population that, that works in construction. And it's often, uh, if, all over the country, it's often a Latinx population, right? Uh, in the Midwest, on the East Coast, not exclusively, but like I feel like anyone uh, who lives in an urban urban setting can identify with that. With that, is either part of the gentrification or is fleeing the gentrification. It seems like 
it's inescapable reality. Where, where, where are you now? I mean, you're obviously in Long Wharf, but where are you located in Portland or still? Or? Los Angeles again. So oh, you're back in LA. Back home, yeah. And it's it's been fascinating. You know, I was on the East Coast for school for seven years. And then coming home, it's it's fascinating how much everything has transformed. And I really appreciate what you mentioned, feeling that the play wasn't necessarily anchored in Los Angeles. I actually did a lot of work to take anything that felt like a regional reference out. Uh, and right. that was really because I wanted that feeling of universality and, and thinking about how we could find specificity, especially sort of cultural specificity, without rooting it in a geographic location or giving the sisters a sort of named country of origin. One of the things that we talked about so much in the revision process was this sort of grand, huge spectrum of identities that comprise the sort of like Latine umbrella and wanting to find a way to make the play accessible to indigenous experiences where it's like the border crossed us. There's no immigration story. It's a colonization story and wanting to make the to immigration and to Latinos from the islands and and sort of finding okay. a way to combine all of those cultural experiences. Interesting. So yeah, you, you chose to sort of, I would genericize is probably the wrong term, but to make it consciously more universal or less specific in that way, or like to not to it, name the country, right? Sort of, I think, making it more specific without using a label. Right, like, okay. One of those traditional dresses that just and then using details that describe sort of like the spectrum of traditional dresses without saying Jalisco. I realized I'm Puerto Rican, but I had written in all these Chicano references, partially I guess, <laughs> LA and having that, you know, that sort of cultural proximity that you have because of what LA is. But yeah, I realized I had sort of written myself out of my play in a sense. <laughs> Eliana, it's such a pleasure to, to talk to you and to yeah, thank to you so much about this play and, and to, to you know be in the world of the play for even just an hour to talk about it um and uh we, you know break a pen whatever they say to playwrights um <laughs> with the long wharf production and uh no we hope to see it you know in one of the one of these cities and maybe even more cities in the future you know a dream <laughs> yeah, congratulations so exciting thank you thanks so much for having me all right till next time bye now